everyone, and welcome to the January 16th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel clarified the requirements for vacating the stipulations of parties who filed a compromise and release, and it was a high standard. In this case, Wendy Johnson was injured while employed by the Santa Inez Valley Journal, who was insured by the state fund. Her case proceeded to trial back in 2019, after which the work comp judge issued a finding and award providing for permanent total disability and an attorney fee of 20%. State funds sought reconsideration of that award, and while reconsideration was pending, the parties entered into a mediation that resulted in a compromise and release in a total amount of $685,000. Paragraph 7 of the CNR they filed provided that one of the amounts to be deducted from the settlement was a $137,000 attorney fee. That was 20% of the settlement. Both applicant and her attorney and the attorney for the state fund signed the CNR. The work comp judge issued an order approving the compromise release as it was written, but the state fund again filed a petition for recon arguing that the work comp judge's finding that an attorney fee of $137,000 was unreasonable and not supported by evidence. But the work WCAB denied reconsideration of the attorney fee award in the panel decision of Thompson v. Santa Inez uh, Valley Journal. In its opinion denying reconsideration, the panel noted that a stipulation between the parties need not be supported by substantial evidence, citing as authority the 2000 published Court of Appeal decision of County of Sacramento v. WCAB Weatherall. A stipulation is an agreement between opposing counsel, ordinarily entered into for the purpose of avoiding delay, trouble, or expense in the conduct of the action, and it serves to obviate need for proof or to narrow the range of litigable issues in a legal proceeding. Stipulations are designed to expedite trials and hearings, and their use in workers' compensation cases should be encouraged. Stipulations are binding on the parties unless, on a showing of good cause, the parties are given permission to withdraw from their agreements. While the Appeals Board has the authority to reject party stipulations, this discretion does not validate capricious decision-making. So the panel concluded by saying that permitting a party to subsequently withdraw from an agreement because they have changed their mind, endangers the finality of approved settlements, and undermines transactional stability in the work comp system, and risks discouraging future settlements. The California Court of Appeal rejected a constitutional challenge made by a pair of plaintiffs who hoped to overturn medical malpractice recovery limits that were set by the California legislature nearly 45 years ago. In this case, Tracy Dominguez and Ruben Javier de Leon claimed that Mercy Hospital of Bakersfield, Arthur Park, M.D., 
and Hans C. U. D. O. provided negligent medical care to Demi Ruben Dominguez and Macalhai Ruben De Leon, resulting in their deaths. Each plaintiff claimed to be the wrongful death heirs to the decedents. The heirs sought to retain the legal services of a firm known as Carpenter, Zuckerman, and Rowley to represent them in the medical malpractice action against the health care defendants. However, this law firm claimed it was not economically feasible for it to represent heirs on a contingency basis given the limitations on the California Civil Code on the recovery in malpractice cases for non-economic losses that are capped at $250,000 and the limitations on contingent fee percentages under the California Business and Professions Code. The law firm said, however, that it is ready, willing, and able to represent the heirs if it is permitted to charge the contingency fee it ordinarily charges in personal injury matters and if the $250,000 cap on non-economic damages is lifted. So the plaintiffs filed a complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief against the California Attorney General and the health care defendants, which challenged the constitutionality of these two California statutes. The lawyers point out that the Civil Code cap on non-economic damages was enacted in 1975 and has not been adjusted for inflation or otherwise in the intervening 45 years. Then the law firm alleged it will spend at least 200000 in cost to prosecute the heirs' claims against the health care defendants. And because the limit on contingent fees applies to a client's net recovery, the law firm would be paid a mere $20,000 in fees. The Attorney General demurred to this lawsuit on the grounds that the plaintiffs do not have standing to assert any one of the causes of action, and also because each fails to state facts sufficient to constitute a cause of action. So the trial court sustained the Attorney General's demur without leave to amend on both of these grounds, and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the published case of Dominguez v. Bonta. The challenge statutes were enacted in 1975 as part of the Medical Injury Compensation Reform Act, MICRA, M-I-C-R-A, after the legislature found that there was a major health care crisis in the state of California, attributable to skyrocketing medical malpractice premium costs. Plaintiffs alleged five different constitutional rights that they claimed are violated by this law. The Court of Appeal reviewed a select number of prior decisions addressing the constitutionality of the challenge statutes, including one of the earliest micro-related cases decided by the California Supreme Court back in 1984. However, because the court concluded that plaintiffs lack standing to pursue the claims they have alleged, it did not need to determine whether their allegations are sufficient to state one or more valid causes of action. In this case, the plaintiff's cause of action for declaratory relief is a derivative of their other claims for medical malpractice in another action. And in this declaratory relief case, for the plaintiff to have standing to file their constitutional claims, there <clears throat> must be an actual controversy 
involving the application of the malpractice law. The definition of actual controversy in the California Code of Civil Procedure does not embrace controversies that are conjectural, anticipated to occur in the future, or an attempt to obtain an advisory opinion from the court. Here, plaintiff's alleged injuries are neither concrete or actual and are, at the present time, conjectural and hypothetical until they file and win the underlying malpractice cases. Thus, the court concluded that plaintiff's lack of standing to challenge the validity of the malpractice recovery and the fee limit law at this time was precluded. Both the California and the Illinois Attorney Generals have filed separate lawsuits against insulin drug makers and a group of related pharmaceutical benefit managers for price gouging. A vial of insulin can cost as little as $2 to manufacture, yet at the pharmacy counter, people with diabetes often end up paying hundreds of dollars for the life-saving medicine. More than 3 million adults in California, that's over 10% of the state's adult population, have been diagnosed with diabetes. To put an end to what he refers to as price gouging, the California Attorney General filed a lawsuit against the nation's largest insulin makers and pharmacy benefit managers for driving up the costs of the drug. Through what he alleges is unlawful, unfair, and deceptive business practices, in violation of Confair, California's unfair competition law. The lawsuit alleges manufacturers Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, and Sanofi, and pharma pharmacy benefit managers CVS Caremark, Express Scripts, and Optum RX have leveraged their market power to overcharge patients. The three manufacturers named in the lawsuit produce over 90% of the global insulin supply, and the three PBMs administer pharmacy benefits for roughly 80% of prescription claims managed. The lawsuit argues that because competition is highly limited in both their markets, these six companies are able to keep ad aggressively hiking the list price of insulin at the expense of many patients. And worse yet, the lawsuit alleges that manufacturers and PBMs are complicit in overcharging for insulin. They allege manufacturers set the drug's list price and PBMs then negotiate for rebates on behalf of health plans. Because rebates are based on a percentage of list price, manufacturers simply raise their list prices to provide the largest rebates they can offer PBMs. Then PBMs are often paid for their services with a portion of the rebate they have negotiated. This, they say, creates an incentive to negotiate a drug with a higher rebate, not necessarily the lowest price for consumers. The California lawsuit comes on the heels of a similar case filed in December by the Illinois Attorney General. His office accused several pharmaceutical companies of artificially inflating the cost of insulin by over 1,000% since the late 1990s, and said that today's insulin has become the poster child for skyrocketing and inflated drug prices. The Illinois suit singles out Eli Lilly in particular, noting the price for a dose of its analog insulin 
Humalog rose by 1,527 percent between 1997 and 2011. And in employment law litigation, a major McDonald's franchisee with 22 locations agreed to pay $2 million to settle an EEOC sexual harassment lawsuit. AMTCR Incorporated and its affiliated organizations have been collectively operating as a single employer in Nevada, Arizona, and California, and collectively own, manage, and operate about 22 McDonald's fast food restaurants in this tri-state region, all with a common owner. Prior to filing the civil action, the EEOC investigated a charge of discrimination that had been filed by a former employee and found reasonable cause to believe that Title VII was violated. And so it invited the employer to participate in informal methods of conciliation and provide appropriate relief. But the Commission was unable to secure an acceptable conciliation agreement, so it filed a civil lawsuit against the companies in the United States District Court, District of Nevada, charging them with sexual harassment and constructive discharge in its restaurants in Nevada, Arizona, and California. The EEOC alleged in general that the sexual harassment included constant groping and grabbing incidents, offensive comments and gestures, sexual advances and sexual ridicule, intimidation and insults, and that many other adversely affected employees could no longer tolerate the hostile and abusive work environment and were subjected to constructive discharge. Several specific instances of misconducts were listed in the complaint with specific allegations made by 10 different claimants in various representative restaurant locations. One of them that took place in California involved a 26-year-old female shift manager and another by a 21-year-old male cook. Both were employed at Defendant's McDonald's store in Blythe, California, and both claimed to be sexually harassed by the same general manager and who was also the hiring manager at this McDonald's store. This Blythe general manager was in charge of receiving and reviewing job applications, interviewing applicants, and making hiring decisions. He was allegedly particularly fond of the young male applicants, and after conducting job interviews, this general manager would message young male applicants by way of Facebook and send them sexually inappropriate messages and requests for dates. And he informed these male applicants by way of Facebook that if they refused to sexually engage with him or date him, he would not hire them. One of the claimants compiled a list of all the sexual harassment complaints that she had received and submitted the list to upper management with a request for an investigation and remedial action, but no effective remedial action was taken. So now the 22-store company has agreed to pay nearly $2 million to resolve the sexual harassment lawsuit, and it has agreed to provide significant franchise-wide injunctive relief aimed at preventing discrimination and harassment in the workplace. AMTCR has also agreed to retain an outside third-party EEOC uh, monitor who will conduct internal audits, 
Establish a centralized tracking system for discrimination, harassment, and retaliation complaints. And ensure accountability and appropriate disciplinary action occurs. And now our crime report. Christopher Camon, the former chief financial officer of the defunct Girardi Keese, California personal injury law firm, was denied his request for bail and will remain in jail while fighting charges that he stole $10 million from the law firm in a side fraud scheme separate from the estimated $100 million that attorney Thomas Girardi is accused to have siphoned off from his client's trust funds. Tom Girardi, once a titan of the California personal injury plaintiff's bar, is believed to have used his client settlement funds as his own personal piggy bank for years. His CFO, Mr. Camon, has been in jail since his arrest at the airport in Baltimore on November 5 when he returned from the Bahamas. Prosecutors with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles say that he planned to leave the country, change his name, and hide. And indeed, the federal judge in charge of his case found that the government proved that he was a flight risk and denied his bail. Prosecutors say Camon, who worked at the Girardi Keys Accounting Department for almost two decades, used falsified invoices, fraudulent transfers, and cash kickbacks from the firm's accounts to steal millions of dollars. They also claim he improperly used the firm's funds for his personal expenses, including home renovations, travel around the world on private planes, and tens of thousands of dollars a month for female companionship. If convicted, the accountant could face 11 to 14 years in prison just for the side fraud. And that does not take into account Camon's possible culpability on the broader fraud scheme perpetrated by Girardi and others, which involved an estimated $100 million stolen from client settlement funds. 49-year-old Cambis Yobian, who lives in Tarzana, pleaded guilty to federal charges that he ran a $6 million scheme in which he sold used medical devices that were deliberately misbranded as new, as well as counterfeit devices that he claimed were to be used with fat-reducing laser machines. Yobian owned and operated MSY Technologies Incorporated, a West Los Angeles-based company, that did business under the names of Thermogen and Global Electronic Supplies. He purchased used transducers, which are medical devices used to tighten the skin of dermatology patients by delivering ultrasound energy to the patient's skin. Used properly, transducers are designed to provide no more than 2,400 treatments, but after this number is reached, the devices are considered depleted and should be disposed of in accordance with health code regulations. Remanufacturers and depleted transducers and an added fabricated serial numbers is what he did to make the transducers appear to be new. He then fraudulently marketed and sold them for many times more than what he paid for them as depleted instruments. Yubian used names of fabricated Thermogen employees on correspondences with victim providers 
and used out-of-state commercial mailboxes for Thermogen's return of addresses on shipments, which he then sent through the U.S. mail. UBN also supplied counterfeit PAC keys. These are medical devices used to operate laser machines designed to reduce fat on patients through the mail. Using a search warrant, law enforcement seized 75 transducers in various states of refurbishment and manufacturing workstations containing tools and transducer parts. UBN admitted in this plea agreement to receiving nearly $6 million in fraudulent proceeds and also admitted to causing reputational harm to the device manufacturers and distributors of these medical devices. UABN will face a statutory maximum sentence of 23 years in federal prison at his June 26 sentencing hearing. 42-year-old Liana Kap- Kapetian, who lives in El Dorado Hills, has sentenced to 18 months in prison for one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and one count of conspiracy to pay and receive health care kickbacks. She and her husband, Akop Atopian, owned and controlled home health care and hospice agencies in the greater Sacramento area, A&G Healthcare Incorporated, Excel Home Healthcare Incorporated, and Excel Hospice, Excel Hospice Incorporated. The two paid kickbacks to multiple individuals for beneficiary referrals, including John E.B., a registered nurse who worked for a hospital in Sacramento, Anita VJ, the director of social services at a skilled nursing and assisted living facility in Sacramento, Jai VJ, Anita VJ's husband, and Mariella Pangangibian, the director of social services at a skilled nursing facility in Roseville all who pleaded guilty in separate cases for their roles in the scheme, and all await sentencing. The agency submitted over 8,000 claims to Medicare for the cost of home health care and hospice services. And in regulatory news, the California legislature passed a law requiring the state auditor's office to conduct an audit of the state bar's attorney complaint and discipline process. This was because the state bar did not take action against Los Angeles lawyer Tom Girardi for misconduct until recently, despite repeated allegations of this attorney's misconduct over decades. A Los Angeles Times investigation documented how the now-disgraced attorney cultivated close relationships with the state bar and kept an unblemished law license despite over 100 lawsuits against him or his firm, with many alleging misappropriation of client money. Girardi, along with his family and employees, contributed more than $7.3 million in political, to political candidates. An auditor's report of the State Bar released in April 2021 noted that the State Bar's backlog grew by 87% from the end of December 2015 to the end of June 2020, and pointed out how that this growing backlog allows the attorneys who are under investigation more time to continue practicing law while their cases are pending, increasing the risk for potential harm to the public. 
The auditor also said that the state bar is also disciplining attorneys at a drastically lower rate for reasons it could not adequately explain, and reported that between 2015 through 2019, the total number of cases that resulted in discipline by the state bar, including reprovals, suspensions, and disbarments, declined by 54%. The public outcry over Girardi's long history of complaints prompted the state bar to conduct its own special disciplinary audit, which it published in June 2021, and which admitted mistakes made in some investigations over the many decades of Mr. Girardi's career going back some 40 years and spanning the tenure of many chief trial counsels at the state bar. The State Bar therefore subsequently prepared a proposal to streamline its disciplinary process, which was provided to the Legal Analyst's Office last October. And subsequently, that office raised concerns with some of the assumptions the State Bar made in developing its new standards, including the overarching question about what level of oversight the legislature wants to exercise over the state bar processes and funding. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that there were 5,190 fatal work injuries recorded in the United States in 2021. Unfortunately, this was an 8.9% increase from 4,664 in 2020, the year before. The fatal work injury rate was 3.6 fatalities per 100,000 full-time equivalent workers, up from 3.4 per 1,000 in 2020, and up from the 2019 pre-academic rate of 3.5. 3.6 fatal occupational injury rate of 2021 represents the highest annual rate since 2016, and workers in transportation and material-moving occupations experienced a series high of 1,523 fatal work injuries in 2021 and represent the operational group with the highest number of fatalities. This was an increase of 18.8% from 2020. Transportation incidents remained the most frequent type of federal event in 2021, with 1,982 fatal injuries, an increase of 11.5% from 2020. Fatalities due to violence and other injuries by persons or animals increased 7.9%, the largest subcategory, and intentional injuries by person increased 10.3% in 2021. Exposure to harmful substances or environments led to 798 worker fatalities in 2020, the highest figure since the series began in 2011. Work-related fatalities due to falls, slips, and trips increased 5.6% in 2021, and falls, slips, and trips in construction and extraction occupations accounted for an increase of 7.2% from 2020. But despite the increase, this is still down 9.3% from 2019. Protective service occupations such as firefighters, law enforcement workers, police and sheriff patrol officers, 
and Transit and Railroad Police had a 31.9% increase in fatalities in 2021. Almost half of these fatalities are due to homicides and suicides. About one-third are due to transportation incidents, representing the highest count since 2016. And in medical news, the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, a public benefit corporation, aims to fundamentally change the way the pharmaceutical industry operates. As a public benefit corporation, it says its social mission of improving public health is just as important as the bottom line. Cost Plus Drugs transparently charges a standard markup on every drug it sells. The CostPlusDrugs.com online pharmacy launched in January 2022 and now carries over 1,000 prescription products delivered by mail to thousands of happy customers every day. And CostPlusDrugs is working with health plans, managed care organizations, pharmacy benefit managers, and self-insured employers to bring these same savings to employer-sponsored benefit plans nationwide. And another company, RX Preferred Benefits, claims it is transforming healthcare through transparent pass-through pharmacy benefit administration services for hospice, long-term care, and workers' compensation. And the two companies have announced a new partnership focused on improving healthcare access and lowering drug spend. Employers and their members utilizing Rx Preferred for their pharmacy benefit management will now have access to all medications available through Cost Plus Drugs within their benefit package, with future plans to expand this offering along with local independent pharmacies. Mark Cuban said that this is another step in bringing transparency to healthcare and lowering drug costs for individuals and families across the country. This is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.